I think there are times that we come to the Bible and we look at some of the human leaders that we see in the Bible that God uses to reveal Himself to us. And, and we see a disconnect. That somehow or another their lives are not like our lives. That somehow or another they enjoyed some kind of access, some kind of status or some kind of a, of ability to control what was going on around them that's not available to you and I. And, and for them, somehow or another, the journey of faith was just different. And i got to tell you, I think in this text today that we're going to look at in Acts chapter 19, we're going to get a sense that their lives were just as bizarre as our lives are. And they're just as hard to figure out. It's still such a, a chaotic kind of situation going on around them. And yet somehow in the midst of the chaos, they found a way to trust. And there's some great lessons for us to learn. This passage of Scripture that we're going to read today is bizarre. At least from an interpretation kind of issue. I mean, we have a sect committed to John the Baptist 25 years or so after John the Baptist died, and they don't know anything about Jesus or the Holy Spirit. we got healing hankies. We have book burnings. we got naked exorcists. We, we have a lot of great stuff in this passage today. It's just bizarre. In fact, there are several commentators that said the book of Acts is great, except for Acts chapter 19. I mean, it's written with this high level, and you kind of get here, and it just kind of seems to just drop down into the wild stories that were somebody's fascination, and it kind of reemerges again. And yet in the midst of this, we can see some profound truths. I, I want to do what we've been doing. I, I'd love for you to turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 19. Many of you have said you've appreciated just reading the entire passage of Scripture, and we're going to take the time to do that again today. And as we do so, I will provide some additional details that hopefully will make some things come to life for you as we read through the text. And with, in that sense, we will understand what God has said to us. Then we'll back up for just a minute at the end and, and look at some things that God is saying to us about how to live with trust in the midst of a chaotic world. Now I want you to recognize that this passage is at the beginning of the third missionary journey. Kind of started in chapter 18, but it comes back now for for fullness in in Acts chapter 19, and continuing over into (coughs) Acts chapter 20. Paul started out his journey in Antioch, which is here to the upper right. And he makes his way across the inland area, visiting the churches that he had already planted. And he keeps his promise from Acts chapter 18, and he comes to the city of Ephesus, and he's going to spend a considerable amount of time in Ephesus. He's going to spend three years there, longer than he spent anywhere else in his missionary journeys. Then after he, he's going to tell of his, of his, of, of his plans to leave Ephesus, continue his travel through Europe in terms of Greece and Macedonia, and then travel back to Jerusalem before he turns around and heads to Rome. Only Paul would go west to go east so he could go back west. But that's just the way it works with Paul. We'll figure that out just a little bit more as we get into it. So Paul is, we're going to find Paul arriving in Ephesus at the beginning of this chapter. And, um, and he's going to spend three years there. He's had a brief introduction to them in Acts chapter 18. We're on his trip back to Jerusalem, back to, to, to Palestine, he, into the church of Antioch. He had spent some time in Ephesus, just a short period of time, and they invited him to come back. And he's there. Now, Ephesus is a major city. It is the economic center of the region. 
It's a city of about 300,000 people, making it a lot smaller than Corinth, less than half the size of Corinth, but still a dominant place in this area, sitting right on the coast and being really at the crossroots of movement between the east and Rome. So we pick up in chapter 19, verse 1. If you have your pew Bibles, you'll find our text today on page 945. Now, Apollos was in Corinth. We read that last time. As Paul had left, Apollos had gone there to teach and encourage the church. And Paul traveled through the interior regions, and that's what you saw through the northern area there of the Mediterranean. And he finally came to Ephesus. And he found some disciples, and he asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And no, they said, we haven't heard that there is a Holy Spirit. Then what with, then with what baptism were you baptized, he asked. And he said, what, what, with John's baptisms, they replied. Paul said, John baptized with a baptism of repentance, telling the people that they should believe in the one who came after him, that is in Jesus. And on hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they began to speak with other languages, and to prophesy. Now, there were about 12 men in all. Now, for scholars, this is a perplexing passage of Scripture. What kind of disciples were they that didn't know the name of Jesus, didn't know the Holy Spirit, and hadn't been baptized in the name of Jesus? What kind of disciples were they? You know, and they just really wrestle with this. But what best we can kind of pull together here, here were some guys 25 years later who were the only message they heard was the message of John the Baptist who said, prepare the way of the Lord, the Messiah is coming. And their hearts are ready for that. And they've been baptized with an expression of the fact that they have readied their hearts for the coming of the Messiah. And along comes Paul, and he finds these guys devoted to God, but they don't know about the Holy Spirit. They don't know if the Holy Spirit's come. They don't know if the Holy Spirit is now indwells a person and empowers a person. They don't know about salvation in the name of Jesus Christ. But when they hear it, they respond. And God brings them into the fold. Verse 8, Paul kind of picks up with this same kind of process that he's done over and over again. First going to the chosen people of Israel, and then when that door gets closed, he moves on to the Gentiles. It says, then he entered the synagogue and spoke boldly over a period of three months, engaging in discussion and trying to persuade them about the things related to the kingdom of God. But when some hardened... It would not believe, slandering the way in front of the crowd, he withdrew from them and met separately with the disciples. You get the picture there that in the midst of these Sabbath day experiences in the synagogue, there's, there, he's just getting interrupted and there's all kinds of contention. He says, this is no good. We, we just got to withdraw. So he withdraws and he met separately with the disciples, conducting discussions every day in the lecture hall of Tyrannus, which is, really means the tyrant. Most likely this lecture hall was kind of open to the community. It could have been even a place that was a market through parts of the day. In this part of the world, they generally took a siesta every day from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. Sign me up. I want to go work there, you know. So And so during this period of time, Paul kind of gives up on making tents, and he goes to this place. And for two years, it tells us in verse 10, he preaches, he's just teaching every single day in the lecture hall. And this went on for two years. So that all the inhabitants of the province of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. Now when he uses the word, 
all the inhabitants. He doesn't mean that every single one of those, but that the gospel spread out through the whole region. So there was the opportunity for everyone to hear that. We know in this period of time, the church at Laodicea and some others were were planted. There was correspondence going on between Paul and the church at Corinth. He even made a short trip there. There's just lots of stuff happening. This becomes a mission base that's spreading out over that whole region, all right? Now comes the bizarre parts. God was performing extraordinary miracles by Paul's hands. So that even faith's cloths, now this is a sweat rag, you're wiping the sweat off of you while you're working, so that even faith's cloths or work aprons that had touched his skin were brought to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. What is up with that? You know, it... I got to tell you, from this side, it just makes you cringe, doesn't it? It makes you think, are the television evangelists right? You know, if you just send in your $278 and you get your blessed prayer cloth, you can have everything you want in the world. So we'll get there in just a minute. So here's Paul. He's working away, making tents. He's wiping it or teaching. And he's wiping his brow, trying to keep from sweating all over everything. And when he tosses them aside, people scoop him up and they run home and the lame walk, the blind see. Demons get driven out. and It's bizarre. Anyways. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists attempted to pronounce the name of the Lord, Jesus, over those who had evil spirits. And the reason they'd done so is that they had heard Paul doing that, right? They observed, much like Simon back in Acts chapter 8, they saw what Paul was able to do, and they said, we're going to try that. And so this is the response you get here in, in verse 13. So, They're going to pronounce this over these evil spirits, saying, I command you by the Jesus whom Paul preaches to come out. Now, these were the seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest. We don't have anyone named Sceva in the official line of high priest. So this could have either been a fabrication or it could have been the fact that they were somehow a part of a high priestly family lineage, but they weren't actually in the direct line to be high priest or the high priest. But these seven sons are making a living being Jewish exorcists in Ephesus. And the evil spirit answered to them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you guys? That'd scare you, wouldn't you, if you try to drive out a demon? So we know Jesus, and he's told us about Paul, but we don't have any idea who you are. And it doesn't get better. It says the man who had the evil spirit leaped on him, overpowered them, and prevailed against them. So they ran out of the house naked and wounded. So there's your naked exorcist right there. I told you it's a bizarre passage. So this became known to everyone who lived in Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks. Then fear fell on all of them. And the name of the Lord Jesus was magnified. It's a good thing, right? And many who had become believers came confessing and disclosing their practices while many of those who had practiced magic collected their books and burned them in front of everyone. So they calculated their value and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. And in this way, the Lord's message flourished and prevailed. Now, let me give you just a little bit of context of what I think is happening here and why, this, why Luke actually tells us this story. Okay? It's not to give the television evangelists a basis for getting you to lay your hand on your television while they reach out for the camera so they can send you a prayer cloth so you can have everything you ever dreamed of. That's not the foundation here at all. You know, you've got to think of the context that this ministry was taking place in. In Athens, it was the intellectual context. 
In Corinth, it was the hedonism context. Here, in Ephesus, it was the magical context. Ephesus was known as one of the cities that was the greatest sorcery cities in the world. People went there to learn these magical incantations that they could take home with them, with these little shrines to Artemis, that they could rub and kind of say things over and miracles would happen for them. People would be get healed and, and, exorcist, and, and demons would get driven out and etc. So it's into this context that the gospel comes. And in order for the gospel to have a reputation of being true spiritual power, you see the kind of things that God does. These aren't designed to become normative forever. But in this particular context, even the clothing that touches Paul, who is the bearer of the gospel, based with the faith of the recipients, brings healing. Because God is showing that his power is greater than any magical powers that might be mean taught across the city. In fact, if we're at a place in time where our faith as Christians need to be nurtured in the same way that it would be demonstrated to those who were under the control of superstition, it doesn't say much about our faith. That if we need these kind of magical towers, uh, magical towels to grow our faith in God, it doesn't say much about where we start with in terms of being dominated by the darkness. Then you have these Jewish exorcists. The, the, the demon possession was believed to be very common in Ephesus and et cetera, and they were constantly doing this. And the Jewish exorcists were among the favorites to be called upon because they talked the funniest. They had these fancy words like Elohim and Yahweh and other kinds of things that nobody else knew really what those were. And they sounded really cool and powerful when they were saying them over the people who were demon-possessed. So these guys were in popular demand. And just like Simon, they see Paul, and Paul can just say, in the name of Jesus, come out. And they would be delivered. And they're saying, this could be a great franchise if we could get this, right? And so they practice the same thing. They go in, they, you know, the higher, go in, we'll try to cast this guy out and say, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul proclaims, leave this person. And the demon says, well, I know who Jesus is. James 3 tells us that even the demons know that Jesus is the Son of God. That doesn't mean that they're redeemed. It just means that they recognize that Jesus is the Son of God. And I know Paul's his messenger, but I don't have any idea who you guys are. And with that, we, and, and, and they just get brutalized. And in that, you see that the, that the power of God is being put on an ele- plane, an elevation that nothing else can reach. And the city has changed. So much so that believers who had continued to embrace part of the world by keeping their magical books, hey, you know, if it, might as well try everything, right? You know, we got faith in Christ. We'll keep the other stuff too. We could maybe make life work somehow. Even these guys come under conviction that we need to separate from this. And they burn these books. They don't want anybody else to have them because they lead people astray. So they burn them. It says they were worth 50,000 pieces of silver. Let me do a little math for you, okay? If a piece of silver was a drachma, which is what is believed, that was equivalent to a day's wage. Now, 50,000 drachmas would add up to 137 years of working for the average person. Now, you just use a number like, say, let's just say 30,000. If you want to say that in our culture, the average worker makes $30,000 a year, that means these people burned up $4.1 million worth of books. They didn't sell them on Craigslist. They didn't sell them anonymously on eBay 
they, you know, and pocket the money in the back door or whatever. They didn't say, well, we'll give 10% to the church, you know. They, 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 just, they just sacrificed it all, $4.1 million worth. God can do some interesting things at times, right? So the city's being changed. That should be the testimony about every church, that its community is changed because of the presence of the church. So when that happens, when the community's getting changed, not everybody likes it. And that's the rest of our story. Let me finish this and we'll make a couple comments. When these events were over, the book burning, has, the fire has died down, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem. So he's going to go west so he can go east. He says, and after I've been to Jerusalem, I might see Rome as well, which is to go even further west. Only Paul. So after sending two of those who assisted him, Timothy and Erastus, to Macedonia, in other words, he sends folks on to Philippi to prepare the church for his arrival, he himself stayed in the province of Asia for a while. And during that time, there was a major disturbance about the way. That's reference to Christianity. For a person named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, provided a great deal of business for the craftsmen. Little context here. Artemis, also known as Diana, was the god of Mother Nature. There were shrines all over the Roman Empire, 33 of them at last count, that were dedicated to the worship of Artemis or, or Diana. One of them was even in Rome. But the center of the, of the cult was in Ephesus. In fact, the structure that was the temple of Artemis was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was on a, on a, a mount, uh, kind of above the city. The platform, the, the, the temple mount was 80,000 square feet. The building itself, the temple, was 165 by 345. Now, to give you an appreciation, the front of our building is 180 feet long, but it's its deepest place. It's only 100, about 110 feet deep. So you imagine a building that's as wide as ours, but it's go for 345 feet, three times as far as ours. It was 57,000 square feet. In the middle of it was a huge altar, over 20 feet square. And on it sat this image that had been carved out of a meteorite of Artemis, which was a multi-breasted woman that they had carved out of this meteorite, showing her ability to nurture all of the world, kind of thing, all of the earth. And this was big business. People came from all over the world to Ephesus to worship before Artemis. In fact, the temple had become so wealthy, it was, a primary, it was a primary financial institution in the entire region. That's where you deposited your money, and that's where you got your loans. It was a dominant thing. And it's being threatened by the gospel. And the world doesn't like it. So look at Demetrius here. He says, when he had assembled them all, as well as the workers engaged in this type of business, he said, man, you know that our prosperity is derived from this business. In other words, we make our living doing this stuff. And you both see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in the, almost the whole province of Asia, this man, has pers- Paul, has persuaded and misled a considerable number of people by saying that gods made by hand are not gods. Doesn't that sound ridiculous? We'll get back to that. Hold on. So not only do we run a risk that our business may be discredited, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis 
may be despised and her magnificence come to the verge of ruin. In other words, if we don't stand up and fight for our God, our God's not going to get to be God anymore. That sounds kind of ridiculous. We'll, we'll get back to that. The very one whom the whole province of Asia in the world adore. And when they heard this, they, they were filled with rage and they began to cry out, Great is Artemis of, of the Ephesians. Now, you mixed the economy with civic pride, with religion, you're going to get a mess. That's what they get. He, he calls on all of them. He calls upon their livelihood. He calls upon their civic pride and being the host of the, the, uh, the, the temple Artemis. And then he, he calls upon their, their religion and it creates a mob. So the fit, city, it says in verse 29, was just filled with confusion. They, they all rushed together into the amphitheater. This amphitheater probably sat 25,000 people as they can tell from excavations. It's a huge mob that's gathered together. And they all rush together. And dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians who were Paul's traveling companions. Though Paul wanted to go in before the people, the disciples wouldn't let him. Even some of the provincial officials of Asia who were his friends said, sent word to him saying, pleading with him not to take a chance by going into the amphitheater. Meanwhile, some were shouting one thing and some another because the assembly was in confusion. And most of them didn't even know why they had come together. They just follow the crowd, right? It's the way we do most of life, right? We just follow the crowd. Then some of the crowd gave Alexander advice when the Jews pushed into the front. So motioning, <coughs> excuse me, with his hand, Alexander wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they recognized he was a Jew, a united cry went up from all of them for about two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. It's interesting. That probably the, the reason why Alexander's getting pushed to the front here is saying, you gotta get up there and tell them, this is the Christians. It's not the Jews. This is the Christians who are doing this. It's not the Jews. We've been in your city for a long time. We've never threatened your livelihood. So, but they won't have, hear a word. But ever, however, when the city clerk had claimed, calmed the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, what man is there who doesn't know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple guardian of the great Artemis and of the image that fell from heaven. Therefore, since these things are undeniable, you must keep calm and not do anything rash. For you have brought these men here who are not temple robbers or blasphemers of our goddess. So if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a case against anyone, the courts are in session and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. This is not the way to handle this situation. He says, but if you want something else... It must be decided in a legal assembly. In fact, we run a risk of being charged with rioting for what happened today, since there is no justification that we can give as a reason for this disorderly gathering. And after saying this, he dismissed them gently. Now, this last part really is Luke again trying to point out that civil authorities didn't find anything wrong or illegal or troublesome about Christianity. His argument here is, you guys have created this huge mob. We filled this amphitheater. We don't have a permit for this. And if, if we don't cease and desist and go home in a hurry, we're going to lose our right to be a self-governing city. The Romans are going to move in and impose martial law, and they're going to take over. we got ways of handling this stuff. Let's get it over with. Let's do it that way. And he dismisses them. And with that, we conclude Paul's time in Ephesus. Now, bizarre story. Healing hankies, naked exorcists, riot mobs, etc., etc. Is there anything that we can learn out of this chaos for ourselves today? Let me, let me just try to point out a few things to you that God spoke to me. We've seen what God said. 
Maybe these are some things that he's saying to us. I find this story of the seven sons of Sceva just fascinating. Here are these Jewish exorcists who pick up the Christian lingo and then think they can go use it with the same power as Paul. You know, I think there are times that you and I think that just by mastering the Christian language, we come to experience the full power of God. Doesn't work that way. Doesn't work that way. You know, what, what, do, the, what do the demons say to them? So we know Jesus, and we know about Paul from Jesus, but you guys, we don't know you guys. You guys may know the words, but we don't know you. The power is rooted in what? The words or in the relationship? It's in the relationship, isn't it? But many of us, I think, we, we feel like we ought to have access to the full array of the power of God in our lives, not because we're living in vital relationship, just because we've mastered the right words. We can sit in a life group. We can sit in a Bible study group. We can, we can be in a Sunday school class. We can come to one of these. We can teach kids or whatever. And we know all the Bible stories. We can talk about David and Goliath. We can talk about Moses and, and the Exodus and the, you know, and the walls of water. We, we know all the stories. We can talk about, you know, the Good Samaritan, except we, we know the words. We've mastered it all. So where's the power? The power doesn't come in the words. It comes in the relationship. Just because a person is fluent in Spanish doesn't make them a native of Spain. You know what I mean? And somehow or another, we think that if we can just master the church language, that somehow or another that's enough for us to be satisfied. And then we go out and live our lives and we're trying to invoke our faith somehow and we wonder where the power is. And that's because we've neglected the relationship. Because Jesus doesn't know us. And we don't really know Jesus in a personal and powerful way. So one of the ways that you and I can come to live with a real spirit of trust, with a spirit of strength in the midst of all kind of chaos, is don't do it by your words. Do it by your relationship with God. Second thing I, I want you to see in this text that strikes me so, so strongly is Paul's in the text. He, Paul's in Ephesus, and he's teaching for a couple of years. And in the midst of that journey, here are people who are followers of Christ and they still got all kinds of stuff from the world that's in their lives. They still got the magic books, you know. Hey, listen, you know, we got to diversify here. Can't put all of our eggs in one basket. But when God clearly shows them truth, that His power is greater than all the other power, they change. They make a huge sacrifice. They're not going to sell them on eBay. They're not going to try to get rid of them on Craigslist or whatever. They're just going to sacrifice $4.1 million and be obedient to what God has shown them. And, and what you see here is that you've got these seven brothers who are trying to manage the power of God. But when the power of God begins to manage us, we really begin to grow. Scholars love to look at this and talk about progressive sanctification. They were learning new truths as they went. And as they discovered this new truth, they brought their life into alignment with it. i got to tell you, folks, that is the journey that every single one of us is on. It's discovering new truths that God is confirming to us. And as we do so, we bring our lives into alignment with them. But when we reach a place where we're trying to manage the impact of God in our lives, 
instead of letting God's power manage us, we're in a difficult place. But if we're going to go with God, we have to grow. We have to change. Even if at times it may mean that we have to jettison things from our lives that were costly, maybe even priceless to us. One one other thing that just jumps out to me is this guy Demetrius. You know, here's the I, I assume that since he's the leader, he's a pretty capable guy. He's a good thinker, right? He's the guy who's able to get all the craftsmen together. This is big business, so he, he, he's kind of like the leader of the pack. And he gets them all together, and he says, you know, if we don't do something, you know, people are going to stop believing that this little junky jewelry we make that people can take home with them, they're, they're going to they're, they're gonna not recognize that those things are really God. How can you come to believe that? Here's a guy who's working in the shop, making this stuff, hanging it on the neat little, you know, silver necklaces, putting it, putting it on people's necks, and they're ready to take it home. And and he's he's convinced that the stuff hanging around his neck that he made himself is really God. How do you get there? How do you get to a place where you know that if I don't stand up and fight for God, that somehow or another the honor of God is going to disappear, and they're not going to get to be God anymore? You know. The truth is, when you and I begin with anything but God, we're going to land up with bad theology. We're going to land up with wrong thinking about God. The particular case here is they started with their wallet, and with that they landed up with bad theology. If any of these beliefs is bad for the bottom line, can't be right. So we've got to find something else in its place. We can do that all the time, can't we? I don't know, we could go in lots of different directions with this, but somehow or another we can consider, you know what, if this doesn't make me happy, then it can't be what God wants for me. That, that's what we bring most often. And when we start with happiness over holiness, we land up with lots of bad theology. Lots of bad theology in our lives. And, and it's prevalent. Because, you know, it's, it's one of the reasons why the church struggles with, with having enough resources financially to do its work and people struggle with being stewards. It has to do, affects the way we practice our sexual ethic in our relationships and it has to do with the way we serve and our commitment to the kingdom. Because somehow or another, if it doesn't make me happy, it can't be what God really wants. And we end up with all kinds of bad theology. But if you and I are going to be the kind of people who can live with great trust and with the great power of God that allows us to stand in the midst of the chaos that is our world and still thrive as people of faith, we have to be people who start with God first. With God first. Who allow God's power to manage us. Because we're living in relationship. Not just having mastered the words, but we're living in relationship with God. It's not like I can just say to my wife, I love you, but it's in the way that I relate to her that the power in a relationship comes. You get it? God wants us to get it. Let's pray together.
Father, as we just quiet our souls for just a minute before you. You know, there's parts of me that look at this and say, boy, some of this stuff has just been used to lead the church astray over the years. Starting to place its trust and hope in things and processes instead of in you. But God, in the midst of this, there's a huge call for us to live in relationship with you. And it's in that relationship that we can thrive. No matter how many riots arise in our lives on a daily basis. God, show us where we're trying to manage you and show us how we can let your power truly manage our lives as we put being holy ahead of being happy. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.